Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Mark chapter 9. Go ahead and go there if you haven't yet. And uh, to shift gears, um, I really felt like we needed to, to really prepare really the top tier of scripture readers uh, for this morning's study. I'm just embarrassing him. Hey, uh, Eddie is going to come up to, uh, to re- uh, lead us in our scripture reading. Give it up for Eddie Carvalho as he makes his way to the stage. Eddie is the Solus athletic director. He leads our sports night every Wednesday. Um, and so we're in Mark chapter 9. If you would stand with me and Eddie for the reading of God's word here, we'll get into it. Good morning, everyone. That's you. (laughs) We're going to be reading out of uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Verse 33. When they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what was it to you? What was it you disputed amongst yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed amongst themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, now John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he did not follow us. But Jesus said, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of the Lord to which we say... Thanks be to God. Thanks. Hey, let's pray together. Father, thank you again for the gift of your word this morning. We just come to you again with that same posture. We ask that you would teach us the Holy Spirit. You would enlighten our understanding to who you are. Um, and as we, we pray each and every week, God, we, we invite you to speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All righty. <clears throat> Um, yeah, and just to honor Eddie a little bit more, he's so much more than an athletic director. I mean, that's just one part of his resume. Eddie and Kelly both have been such a blessing to our church. Kelly helps organize all of our events uh, each and every month. Can we just thank them and honor them? They're such a great couple. We love you guys. Thank you. And Eddie is one of our few drummers who is up there each, each week jamming it. Um, okay, well, uh, this will be... I purposely picked a smaller section of scripture here, 11 verses, knowing that we would be shorter on time uh, this morning, both with our construction entrance and with the pastoral word we wanted to share. Uh, And so just uh, to catch you up, we've been studying the Gospel of Mark here this year uh, for about almost six months now. The Gospel of Mark, out of the four Gospels, which are all biographies on the life of Jesus, that's what the Gospels are, biographies on the life of Jesus, Mark has, and they each have a unique focus. They give a unique angle. They have a unique tone. They offer something different, almost like you, you can, you know how you can like tell 
the director of a movie by watching the movie. Every director has their own style and their own you, you, you know, um, way in which to tell the story. Well, the Gospels are the same way. As these authors are inspired by the Spirit, their human personality is fully involved, and they each have their own tone to them. Mark is the one Gospel out of all the Gospels that has a unique focus on how Jesus is living his life. I mean, that's really what it's about. Like, you remember the bands growing up, WWJD? Remember those? Those are all the rage. I used to hang out with some troublemakers whose moms used to make them wear that out in public. Like it was going to be some sort of like handcuff or something for righteousness. It did absolutely nothing. Um, I remember sinning with them and sinning, and they would have the bracelet on. I'd be like, you're sinning with that. All right, now, I've done sins before. Um, now, WWJD, if you have questions about what would Jesus do, what is the way in which Jesus navigates life, the Gospel of Mark is the best place to go as it focuses uniquely on his actions. Now, this morning, we actually get a, a, a little treat because we get really majority of this passage is teaching from Jesus, which is really what you find more in Matthew, Luke, and John, but we get some solid Jesus teaching uh, a lot of what we call red letters from Jesus here in this passage. Uh, each week, as we look at a different section in Mark, we're focusing on a different aspect of the way of Jesus, the way that he does all sorts of different things. This morning, why don't you jot this down? We're looking here in Mark 9 at the way Jesus redefined. The way Jesus redefined. Last week, we had Pastor Jim Gallagher here from Calvary Vero. He was teaching on the way Jesus was transfigured before the disciples. That's our context. And here in this section, we see the way Jesus redefined. Um, that's what we see Jesus doing here in this passage. As he is teaching his disciples, Jesus is redefining a variety of different concepts for them. He is, listen closely, this is what Jesus does for all of us. He's giving us and giving them a whole new way to understand some concepts that were previously understood differently. It's redefining it for them. That, that again is the context here. Mark 30 and 31, it tells us here that we just read this, that Jesus is departing from the previous context and passing through Galilee. And notice he doesn't want anyone to know it. Jesus is operating in almost like purpose seclusion and uh, what's the word? Incognito. Isn't that a word or something like that? Stealth mode. All right. Jesus is trying to remain under the radar because he knows that in, in months ahead, his time is going to come, as he's going to mention. He's going to be crucified. And, and his goal right now is not just to fill rooms with large crowds. It's to invest what's left of his life into his disciples. Does that make sense? He wants to focus his time on them, and he's per particularly focused on preparing them because his time is short and he's got to do what he can to, to get these boys ready. And um, it's quite a task, isn't it? Okay? So Jesus is focused on that, preparing his disciples. So he, he's remaining in seclusion. Now, one of the main ways that Jesus prepared his disciples is he would sit down and he would teach them. That's what he's doing here. He's getting alone with his disciples and he's teaching them. It's important to know when you read the passage of, of, of a passage of scripture, especially any, anything that's um, didactic in nature, which means it's doctrinal and teaching, it's really important to know who's teaching and who's being taught. One of my biggest pet peeves is when Christians take things that are taught to Christians and they preach them at the world. It's like, no, that's that's your mail, not theirs. That was one of the reminders we got from Pastor Jim at the marriage conference. Remember that? Wives, submit to your husbands. And he's like, husbands, why are you reading that? 
Stop reading someone else's mail. Read the next part. Husbands, love your wives, right? Now, knowing who's teaching and who's being taught is such an important part of interpreting Scripture. Here, it's Jesus teaching who? His followers. That's who this content is going to. It's important to make that distinction because teaching is a central aspect of discipleship. Discipleship is about following Jesus, to learn his way, and to take on his way of life. That's what it means to be a disciple. To be, the word disciple means learner. I'm a student. All right? And we know as Christians, when we are born again, when we are saved through the cross, we become lifelong learners. It's not like a season that you graduate, like, oh, I was in that learning disciple season. The way we think about discipleship in our culture and in the church is so messed up. It's like we think about discipleship as like a, uh, either we think about it as a level you get to, Ooh, if you serve long enough, give long enough, and memorize enough scripture, you one day can be a disciple, right? Are you a, are you a Christian or are you a disciple, all right? Don't think that way about discipleship. It's not some high, you know, Navy SEAL level that you get to, nor is it a phase that you pass through. Oh, I remember when I was, when I was a disciple. I moved on now. I'm a, a saint, I guess is what I am now, but... I remember when I was a disciple and a learner, I was learning all these things that you're learning. No, that's not the posture of a disciple. A disciple is someone who's dedicated their life to, to learning and living the way of Jesus. To learning and living, a lifelong learner seeking to learn and live the way of Jesus. Now, the way that we learn and live that is through the teaching of Jesus. It, it begins in our mind. That's how he develops his disciples. And this has been, hasn't this been one of the main themes we've looked at the past couple chapters? Like the work of Jesus to enlighten people's understanding to know the truth. The, the narratives we believe, the truth that we grasp onto is a major part of our transformation. You, you really do become what you believe. Uh, this is what Paul writes in Romans 12 too. He says, do not be conformed to this world. Okay, so don't be conformed, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul says two things in this verse. He says a couple things, but we'll say these two things. First thing that he implies is that formation is inevitable, right? It, you're you're going to be formed. The word formed there is used twice for two different directions. You don't have a say in the matter. You are right now becoming someone. There's something that's, that's playing into the shape of your life, that's determining who you are and who you're becoming, both in your heart and in your actions, in your mind and in your life. We're, we're all being formed. Here's what Paul says. Here's the exhortation. You're going to be formed. Make sure it's not confirmation into the form of the world. Be purposed to make sure that what's happening is you're being transformed, that you're being transformed into what Paul will go on to call the image of Christ. That's a disciple. Now, notice the second thing he says, which is how that happens. You're transformed, how? By the what? One more time. We're transformed by the renewing of the mind. Isn't that interesting? This is where Jesus begins to transform our lives. He sits down with the disciples, and he begins to teach them. Because if they're going to be changed, they've got to listen closely. They've got to learn some whole new ways of thinking. They've got to be transformed through the, notice the word there again, the renewing of the mind. Um, you're in my mind, in the state that it's in when we come to Jesus, isn't sufficient for our discipleship. We, we need renewal. 
And, and renewal is simply when you take something old and you do what? You make it new. You ever like renewed, you know, some, your neighbor's garbage or something like that? You ever done that? Me too? Just me? Okay. You know, you, you restore that thing. You get your, you know, your Magnolia Farms on in your Boca backyard, okay? You renew it. You take something that's old and you make it new again. This is what God does. Listen, when God rescues our lives and calls us to follow him, he begins to take the old thinking in our mind and replace it with new. He wants to change our, as you've heard, our stinking thinking, right? And he wants to help us think about what we think about to make sure it aligns with what's true. Now, part of this work of renewal that God does, taking old ways of thinking, replacing it with new ways of thinking, and there's some great psychology that gets into this, neuropathways, and the science behind how this actually can happen, despite what's happened to your mind, despite the patterns of thinking that you've fallen into for years upon years, it takes work, but it's not impossible for, to have your mind renewed, to have your mind cleansed and restored. Now, one of the main ways that Jesus renews the mind of a disciple, listen closely, is he teaches them, listen, to unlearn the previous ways of thinking. Unlearning. I think we underestimate this sometimes. We're just like, I'm a Christian. I just need to learn the way of Jesus. Learning the way of Jesus requires unlearning. It, it, it requires those old ways that we've adopted. So, so when Jesus would teach, you ever notice he would say this? This is, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, this is how Jesus would often preface any teaching he was going to give. He would say, you have heard it said. In other words, you have some old thinking, but I say to you, I need to renew your mind into something new. You need to think differently. This is how he changes our minds. He takes old thinking, he calls it out, and sometimes that's the best way to grow in our understanding of Jesus is in community. You, you, and I've had this happen before where like, I say things that I just always assumed were true about God, and someone's like, that's not true. What verse is that? I'm like, First Andrews chapter 12? I don't know. Like, and this is why community is so great. Because we, we've got, we don't realize how much old thinking there is. And this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. He wants to surface the assumptions that actually aren't from God in the first place. And he wants to replace that old thinking. He wants us to unlearn it to think the way of truth. You have heard it said. You have come to think a certain way. You have been taught to think a certain way. But a major aspect of discipleship is unlearning what we assume so that we can receive from heaven the truth. Amen? Okay, so Jesus here is about that ministry to his disciples. And part of teaching means, I've got to redefine some things for you guys. The disciples have their own special way of thinking. And you can't blame them. I mean, they're thinking the way any first century Jew would. This is, just the, the, this is how culture has formed them to think. And so Jesus is going to help them out. Jesus gives us some help. We come to him with our thinking, our stinking thinking, and he shows up and he redefines some of these concepts that we think of. Here's a couple of them. The first thing we see Jesus redefining in this passage for the disciple is the concept of success. What do you think about when you think about success? All right, the disciples had their own definition of success. So did Jesus. What we see, ironically, is that Jesus' understanding of success was the definition of failure for the disciples. 
And so here's what it says. Jesus redefined success. He taught his disciples, and this is the second of three passion predictions that Jesus will make here in the Gospel of Mark, pointing to where his ministry is headed, which is the cross. And in this second of three passion predictions, he tells them that the Son of Man, he adds a, a detail here that he didn't include in chapter 8, the Son of Man is being betrayed, so Judas is there hearing that, into, notice this, the hands of men, when God is delivered into the hands of, the man, of mankind that he created, here's what they do, they kill him. That's what's going to happen. He's going to go to the cross. And after he is killed, he will rise on the third day. Like, this is a big deal, by the way. Like, it doesn't just say he's going to be killed. Jesus tells him, oh, also, three days are going to go by, and I'm going to come back like nothing happened. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? It says, but they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask him. Like, I imagine Jesus says this, and what we would expect is disciples go, Amen! You're going to be crucified, and then you're going to come back to life. Amen! And Jesus says, I'll, be, I'll rise on the third day, and the disciples are just like, they, they can't believe it. They're perplexed. They don't understand. They can't fathom what he's talking about. Another translation says that they're filled, filled with great fear. Luke tells us that they're actually exceedingly sorrowful. There's a sense of disappointment in their minds. And, and here's why. This doesn't fit into their messianic box of what they expect the Messiah to do. Like they've come, Peter made the declaration last chapter. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. We know that's who you are. But our expectations of the coming Messiah is that he won't just come, but he will lead us as the people of Israel to be liberated from this oppressive empire and he'll establish political Israel once again. They had this box, so much so that, listen, this in their eyes was a vision of a failed Messiah. I mean, a crucified Messiah isn't a, failed, isn't a successful Messiah. That's a failed Messiah. So, so again, listen closely. Jesus had one idea of success, and the disciples had a completely different one. Not just in terms of the Messiah, but also just generally. I think this can be relevant to our lives as well. Have you ever found that your own definition of success contradicted Jesus's? Now here, let me, let me give a couple ways that we can think about this. The first contrast we see here between Jesus and the disciples is that for the disciples, success was tied to gaining. Gaining, in an earthly sense, what Jesus could gain as the king, what we could gain physically. What we could accomplish here politically, it was tied to gaining. For Jesus, success was not about how much can we get, but how much can I give. Isn't that beautiful? The Son of Man is coming to be killed, but John tells us that no one takes the life of the Son. He lays his own life down. He gives his life. For God even so loved the world that he, what? Gave his only begotten Son. Um, th this, this flies in the face of the, the, the American vision for success, doesn't it? The American dream. How much can you get? How much can you gain? If you, if you haven't gained this much at this stage in our life, you must have failed. You had these expectations of what you could gain, or you look over and you go, look at what they're gaining. Look at what they have. I must be a failure. Listen, it's a broken framework to start with. See, in the kingdom of God, it's flipped upside down. Your life of success is not determined by how much you can gain 
in this world. It's about how much can you leverage what you have for the kingdom of God and others. How much can you get that success in the kingdom? Not when you die, how big is your storage unit? But when you die, how much of a legacy is there in the life of others? Success is not tied to what you can gain. It's what you can give. This isn't the first time that Jesus taught this. Earlier, he told his disciples that whoever desires to save his life is going to lose it. But whoever loses his life gives his life for my sake, and the Gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? We see it? Jesus is saying that, that's not success. Success is not found in what you can gain. It's found in saying, Lord, all that I have comes from you. All that I am is yours. Now I want to give all of me to you. That's success. The end of my life to say, God, I've given it all. This is what Jim Elliott famously said before going to his own death, giving his life for the gospel's sake. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We could also say, he is no failure. Couldn't we say that? A man is no failure to give what he cannot keep to gain the eternal rewards of what he cannot lose. So, so that's the first major issue between Jesus and the disciples. They're thinking about success in terms of gaining. Jesus is thinking about it in terms of what he can give away for our own salvation. Aren't you thankful that Jesus gave his life? For you and me. Now also, there's another framework here. The disciples are thinking about success in earthly terms. Jesus is thinking about it in eternal terms. The disciples are thinking about success in light of what can be done here and now in the temporal. Jesus is looking beyond political Israel. Jesus is looking to the ends of the earth. Jesus is looking to the eternal legacy of revelation that has every nation, tribe, and tongue before the throne. One person had, or the disciples rather, had this earthly perspective. Jesus is offering a contradictory definition of success that doesn't look at what's seen, but looks at what's unseen. You can, listen, you can succeed in the eyes of man and fail in the eyes of God. Conversely, you can fail in the eyes of man, yet succeed in the eyes of God. And our goal is not to do what's right and not to succeed in the sight of man. Our goal is to set our sights heavenward, to do what Jesus said, which is to not lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. That's not success and where thieves break in and steal. Here's success. Lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys nor where thieves break in and steal. That's the vision. Totally different idea of success. One more thing about this. The disciples had a natural understanding of success. Jesus had a spiritual one. There, there's a, a self, kind of like, self, what can I selfishly gain idea of success? There's a earthly mindset of success versus what can I sacrificially give eternally? And when you get to the core of it, it's almost like we're getting deeper and deeper into this definition Jesus gives. For Jesus, success wasn't about some sort of natural accomplishment, but it was about a spiritual task that he had been given from the Father. I mean, what he says, I'm going to give my life, son of, the Messiah is going to be killed, this is the spiritual assignment for the Messiah from the ages. This is what he came to do. It didn't match their natural expectations, but it was right on par with the spiritual prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus here is fulfilling his spiritual task. I don't know if 
if, if like success can be defined any clearer than this, okay? At the end of the day, if you want to know in your life, if you're being successful, ask yourself this question, am I about what God has called me to do? Am I about what God has, not what man wants me to do? That's not success. Am I about what God has called me uniquely to do? Spiritual success. Success is not what you do in competition to what others do. Success is what you do in light of what you've been called to do. That's success. So a great example of this is the Apostle Paul. Paul's like whole life was a, like he already had built. This is one of the best things that could happen to you and me. Um, you spend your life for earthly success and you get to the top of the ladder and you're like, this didn't work out. I think Tony Evans is the one who said, um, you, you know, you, you climb the top of the ladder and you realize that it's leaning on the wrong wall. Like, oh, I don't want, I need a different kind of success. And Paul had that life-changing moment in his life. Um, Francis Chan talks about it too. He talks about a lot of things that'll change our lives. And he said this, he said, you know, the, the scariest thing in life is not that you fail. It's that you succeed at things that don't matter. Biggest, biggest failure in life is not failure, but it's succeeding at things in life and missing what God has called you to do. It's getting to the top of the ladder and it's on the wrong wall. And Paul had this moment where like his ladder came crashing down and Paul was knocked off a high horse, literally. Okay, pretty high horse. I don't know if it was high or not, but Paul... He changed his whole life. In Acts 20, 24, he says, when I go through things in life, he goes, the things that, that happen to me, they don't move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I'm not holding on to it. So that I may, here's his goal in life, that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul's like, here is my goal. I'm after this success, fulfilling what God has put me on earth to do. That's it. That's success. So Paul, at the end of his life, in 2 Timothy 4, um, by every cultural metric, we would say that Paul is a, what? A failure. Paul's a, I thought that if God blesses your ministry, you end up in like a really big mansion in Nashville with book deals and a TBN program in the evening. Isn't that what ministry success looks like? Here's Paul at the end of his life, and he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul is dying alone in prison. He doesn't even have the basic necessities of life. He asks them, can you bring me a blanket? I'm cold. He's poor. He's been abandoned by all of his ministry peers. The farthest thing from a success like Paul's first grade teacher is like, oh my gosh, Paul, what happened to you? I dreamed such great things for your life. But Paul sees his life not through the lens of humanity, but through the lens of heaven. And he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. This is the goal. This is success. Finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says, I've succeeded in the eyes of God. And I have a great reward ahead of me in the kingdom.